Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the 5AM Hustle podcast. Today, we have Chip Staley with us. Um, he was a music educator for almost 20 years. He served um, in uh, Nico Valley High School and Wabonzi Valley High School. Um, under his tenure at Nico Valley, the school was twice recognized as a Grammy Signature School. And now he's the president and founder of Art Speaks, an organization dedicated to uplifting music in our communities. Um, he's also won a plethora of awards, the um, ASBDA Distinguished Band Director Award, the LMEA Mary Hoffman Excellence in Teaching Award, um, and the John Philip Sousa's Foundation's Subtler Flag of Honor, um, just to name a couple. So thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Staley. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, so we're just going to dive right into it. Uh, first question, why music? Why is it something that you've clearly devoted your life to? Yeah. Well, I think for everybody who is in music, um, there's a passion that we have for the art form, and that really drives us to do as much as we possibly can. We find it infinitely interesting. Um, and there are so many reasons why music should be pursued by every child all the way through high school, either in informal instruction, like learning how to play guitar, or learning how to play the ukulele, <laughs> or uh, taking formal instruction all the way through. Being involved in music is a birthright for all humans. And uh, it's one of the things that we've sort of made an elite um, art form so that people who don't play professionally think they're not musicians. And the truth is we're all musicians, but some of us have carried it on and made it part of our life story and others of us just enjoy it. Uh, those are equal endeavors in my mind. Uh, I think we should all pursue the pa passions that we have and uh, for me, it happened to be music. Yeah, um, that's actually really interesting because you think about it from like an evolutionary standpoint back way back when, <laughs> when we were all like hunters and gatherers, that's something that brought people together. It's just like taking like whatever, like a tree branch or whatever and poking a hole through it. And there you go, that's like, that's an instrument. And I think that that's something that you can see throughout history is that music's power to connect people. Let me say, I think you, you hit on something, you know, it is a primal need that we have. And you know that how people are coping during this time of coronavirus is to share music. So uh, the internet is filled with people singing and uh, performing sort of a, a selfie music moment. And it's one way that we can bring ourselves together even though we're apart. And I know your own, uh, Nikwa's own, Greg Schwegler, did, uh, you know, Lift Your Voice last Saturday. Did you participate in that, Amish? Yeah. That was really and, so, and, and truly, the message there is we have a need, a, a human need to connect, and music does that. I will, I will tell you one thing. Your instincts are exactly right, but research is telling us um, that it's more than just a hunch. It's actually something you can prove. Uh, there is no time in the history of humans that we can find that the arts weren't present. None. Even a Neanderthal would uh, draw the trajectory of spears in caves in order to envision what they needed to do to capture their prey. It was a survival skill that they had to have an imagination. 
because they couldn't practice as much as they would need before they would starve to death, you know, so they had to think about it. And if you think about cultivating the imagination as being a survival skill, then the arts really come into play more than anything. So I'm just saying you hit it right on the head. This is something that we sort of know, we sort of can, it's our intuition Mm -hmm. that music is, is important. But what we have to realize is the research says it's essential. I think what's also very interesting is that we all know that music enlists some sort of emotion into us all. And it's crazy to think that we can listen to one song that gives us a moment of joy and another song that gives us sadness or one that gets us excited. It's very interesting to see how music can connect us um, and turn even our day around to some extent. Jack, have you ever talked to your friends when you listen to music and talk about how it makes you feel? Mm -hmm. Now, does it make you feel exactly the same way? Not always, no. No. Uh, And are you wrong then if you don't match what your friends feel? No. So it's one of those art forms where you can have your own personal connection with something that a friend enjoys, but it's absolutely unique to you and they have an experience unique to them. That makes it even more rich to share music because we know it's going to touch our different ways. And for your age especially, being able to be in touch with your feelings is actually a survival skill. You need to be able to do that. This is a time when you're exploring, and this is something that you need in order to thrive. And uh, so I, I love the fact that you, you do that with your friends. I know that as an offering in school, when I teach uh, music, I love the fact that I can ask a question. And there will, if, I have, if I have 50 people, and Namisha's seen this, if, I've had, if I have 50 people in front of me, I'll get the possibility of 50 different answers. Right. What other, what other class do you take where you can have your own answer? So music provides a safe place for you to explore your emotions in school. Yeah. I think that that's, we talk about that in like just our band class lot, right? So we're trying to create this image out of music that doesn't necessarily have words to it. And so that, that kind of takes us like into the segue into like something else we want to talk about is music's impact directly on the brain. So if you're obviously, if you're trying to come up with this kind of imagery there, you're definitely using more parts of your brain than um, just like one part. Right. Um, And I know I watched a couple of like your Ted talks and stuff and you're talking about how um, people who have Alzheimer's music is the last thing to leave. So could you just elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, that's actually a long story. So I'll try to, (laughs) I'll try to give you the short version. Um, there's a website, if you want to explore it, any of your listeners want to explore it further, there's uh, Brain Bolts is the uh, website, and it is run by Northwestern Neuroscience, and the name of the neuroscientist is Nina Kraus, and she really explores how music develops the language center of the brain, and uh, basically what that that's one of the things that you described how we connect with each other. It's a language that helps us uh, match emotions 
if we're singing and dancing together to celebrate, if we're singing because we're grieving, we, it's a societal need to match, to be connected. And as, a, as an individual, we are exploring on our own so that we develop our own ideas about how to use the arts and how to use music in order to develop our imagination as you described. So there's a language center in our brain. It's called the audi uh, auditory cortex. And in 2005 at Dartmouth University, they used a MRI machine to take volunteers and study what happened in their brains when familiar music had gaps in it. Well, you all know what happens when there's a gap in familiar music. Your brain fills it in. Mm -hmm. You know, you start a song. Every, every one of us has experienced a, um, an earworm is what we call it. It gets in there and it drills and you hear the song over and over. There's no music playing, but somehow your brain is playing it back to you. And so what they found was the activity in the brain shifted from uh, the primary auditory cortex, which really decodes this, the actual vibrations in, in the air, and, and uh, moved to the secondary cortex whenever music wasn't playing. So they said in that area of the brain, that's where we process our music memories. Well, with elders, as you described, when they lose their memories, they can get connected to their memories from this, the very core center of the brain. It's very much in the center of the brain. Because people with Alzheimer's, their brain uh, dies from the outside in. So as you said, until your very last breath, you still have access to musical memories, memories that are connected to music. It's an inv involuntary re response. Like you can't, you can't sit here and think about it and recall it. Music has to happen and then it brings up all those, all those memories for elders. So what uh, Namish referred to is that uh, I'm now trying to uh, train, or actually not trying, I'm actually training uh, teenagers to go in and create playlists for elders so they can experience this moment when elders come back to life, uh, what, which means comes back to their life and to remember who they once were. So I'm very curious, how do you figure out what that playlist is for um, each individual? And that is a great question. And that's, you should take the training. Cause I'll be training, uh, I'll be training people at NEQA in the, in the fall. Um, hopefully if we are able to physically distance to do that, we'll see how that, how that turns up. But um, there's a foundation called alive inside liveinside.org you go to their website and they can show you how to ask the questions that will lead you to the songs that will connect with the elders and my training sort of does that it helps people know okay this is the kind of question this age group uh, can be asked and then they'll start to help you know where to go for example uh, people who are have memories of world war ii and there are fewer and fewer of those people will generally be connected to music from the 40s and late 40s, uh, right after the war, which was big band music. And you can usually do something like In the Mood, Glenn Miller, and um, people will respond to that. But you can't 
Jack, it's a great question because you can't just guess. You have to have a conversation with them. And the magic of it is you, you have that conversation and invariably it's rather dry. It's the way they present it if you came in to visit and they don't really know you and they're trying to get to know you. So they just answer briefly and give you very short questions if they can. And then when you bring the music back, if you do the right job, oh my gosh, then you get to hear about their life. Because all of a sudden, uh, one example was one of our guests, elders, who was experienced frontal lobe dementia, was uh, incapable of putting one word after each other without great effort. Mm -hmm. Just would lose the words, aphasia. And uh, so he couldn't really tell us much, and this was an Equal student that found this uh, song, but they found uh, a song that somehow, I don't know how he magically found it. It was very, very difficult. <laughs> and uh, when uh, the student came back to uh, give that music, he, uh, the elder lit up and was able to tell a complete story with no pauses, no hesitation about how he went to see a play with his wife it was an early memory with his wife, one of the best times in his life when he went from Illinois to New York City. It was just magic. So it, the, the trick is, Jack, to find, find a tune like that. That, that was a, a memory. I've done this hundreds of times, but that's a memory I'll never forget. Wow. Um, yeah, so I was just wondering what exactly like do you have any examples of how um music can be connected to the greater world so like something i'll never forget that you said to my band class was um you talked about how in an ensemble in a collective ensemble there's a lot of cases where it's not your fault but it's your responsibility and that's <laughs> yeah. something that's something that i i don't even know when you said to me maybe it's been like a year or so maybe even longer yeah. that's something that's always stuck with me um and it's because, right, like you have to, you have to adjust to what everybody else is doing in terms of tuning, in terms of balance, dynamics, uh, tempo even. And so like, do you have any other examples of how it might connect to the greater world, both like in a social aspect, but also maybe like a business or entrepreneurial aspect? Yeah, I think, <laughs> thank you for remembering that because uh, that came from the idea of people who are musicians explaining why they're failing. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, it's not really my fault. And that applies directly to how the workplace works. You know, how, uh, have you guys done group work? Yeah. Do you like group work? It varies. If you get the right team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you get the right team, but th that, is a good example of it's it's not my fault but it's my responsibility that's why probably because you guys are self-starters i can bet that you when somebody on that team doesn't do their job you're going to fill it in it's just a natural response that you have because you're not going to give yourself an excuse because there's the product that you want to to have that's going to be excellent if your name's on it then it's got to be good so in the workplace, having the idea that it's not your fault, but it's your responsibility will carry you far because you're thinking about it in terms of what you can do to make things better, not what you 
what you're aware of that can give you a reason not to succeed. Because a lot of people are searching for, a lot of people who are leaders in our country right now are searching for somebody to blame instead of taking the responsibility and making it happen. You know, there's some people who are leading this country who are explaining that the coronavirus is not their fault. This would be a perfect time for them to say, it's not our fault that we have coronavirus, but it's our responsibility to attend to it. Right. So does that answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not to get into politics, but we're no. all affected by it. So. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. Um, yeah. I feel like there's only, there's only so long that you can play the blame game, right? And obviously it might be some, uh, some people's fault more than others, but you're all in it together. <laughs> all of your names are going to be on that final paper. So. Yeah. Might. And I think it's, I think it's more how you respond to that than really an intellectual exercise. I think it's more of a practical exercise and that if your philosophy is that you're going to contribute at the highest level that you can and that you're going to take responsibility for that, you'll, you'll be able to achieve a lot more just because of the fact that um, you're not going to find yourself in a position where you're going to stay in bed all day to avoid a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a reason to blame somebody else for this problem, so I'm just not going to attend to it. Uh, people who do really, really well in life um, go after the problem and take it on. And that's taking responsibility for whatever it is they're, they're supposed to be doing. And yeah. so you relating it to, the, to a musician, there's no greater training ground for that. Um, if you're playing a duet with somebody and you're out of tune, you have to resolve that. Yeah. You know, so uh, that's a good example too. So if you play, you play flute, so you're yeah. going to play a low, you're going to play um, a D flat, low D flat. That is a horrendous note on the flute. Right. That is not going to play well for you. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's not your fault. That's the way it's designed. But should you then say, I'm going to play out of tune? No. You know, and so clarinetists who play an F, throat F on the clarinet, that's a terrible note. A throat tone on the clarinet is terrible. Right. It's not your fault. But you got to deal with it. <laughs> but you got to deal with it. So yeah. that's where that comes from. For yeah. sure. I think there's also this, and like, I don't know, I keep on touching upon this in like all these episodes. Anyone that's listened to a lot, you're going to hear this a lot from me. But um, I think there's also the component of delayed gratification that you get out of both music and out of like athletics. Um, But I know my band director specifically touches upon it so much. We're talking about how increasingly in our world, there are fewer outlets for us to practice delayed gratification because of things like technology. And like I did a little uh, podcast episode on it and um, I talked about like Amazon prime, right? You order something and it's like, it's here within two days, which 20, 30 years ago would be ridiculous. Um, but now it's completely doable. And I think that the idea that you're putting so much work into something for so long with no like real idea of where you're going to go, just an image, just like a, and like an idealistic um, goal that you're trying to reach is something that's so valuable in the workforce because increasingly you have 
more and more managers that are complaining about how they have newer people that come and they want to be VP in a month or a VP in a year or whatever. Right. But that's just not how it works. You got to keep on working towards it little by little. You do. So why do you think, uh, either one of you, Jack, Namish, what, why do you think people need to be rewarded right away? What do you, where do you think that comes from? Hmm. A tough question. Yeah, I think it's I think it's primarily just out of the idea that you're working, right? So it's like because you're putting in so much work into it, you expect something out of it all the time. When in reality that might not be the case. Yeah, I think it's like input outputs, the difference between working hourly or working on creating a business and then making that money in the future that you want to too many people are impatient. They want the direct reward to get that dopamine hit that they did a good job and they deserve something. Right. It's, it's that idea that I, that I like that input output that the world is set up in a way that if you put effort into something, you deserve something in return. Right. Do you believe that that's true? No, it's a, it's an, it's an idea of entitlement. Uh, that they ah. think they deserve something constantly if they do some work they deserve the equal amount back or even more i think that it's i think that it's something that was an idea that in theory was very good but then like was construed right so like we live in the united states and from you see it all the time in hollywood in the media you're you're shown that if you move here or if you are just living in this country and you work really hard, you will get something out of it, right? But I, I think that I think that what's more evident is that if you work really hard, your children will get something better out of it, or people generations down the line will get something better out of it. And I think that's part of like the delayed gratification component. But a lot of people just take the first half of that statement. They're like, if you work really hard, you'll get something out of it. Um, and I think that's where people start to misconstrue uh, stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah, our brains are wired for gratification, dopamine, you you know all about that. That's yeah. just, we're sort of set up to find uh, pleasure in this world, and a lot of people are motivated by that. And so um, my thought is you're exactly right, that people are sort of set up in their mind that if they push this button, they'll get this in return. And you know what? That pretty much works online. Right. And so that whole virtual reality that they have uh, they translate to expectations in life. Hmm. So you asked me a question beforehand about, said sort of, um, well, this points to something that you talked about in your first email to me. So um, maybe we can get into that. So what are you lacking if you are, if you operate that way and you find out that the world does not present that way? In other words, if I put work in, I am guaranteed nothing. Right. right. So you were talking about a couple of words that would describe somebody who is able to deal with that and somebody who's not able to do with that. They have certain characteristics. And what would you describe that as? I know one of them I put down was grit. Remember that one. Um, what else? Pers perseverance, I think. Right. Resilience, something like that. Resilience. So let's let's talk about that because that's a pretty important subject and i can i can relate this to um my field of expertise and 
and what we agree we all are interested in and that we're all musicians here on this talk let's talk about the difference between grit and resilience grit is the ability to handle a setback in the moment many people have grit resilience is the ability to handle multiple setbacks over time without losing resolve. And that's important to know because if you know those, that definition, you're gonna find that in the moment when you see an athlete who has to rise to the challenge of whatever comes up, like all of a sudden they've got a strained ankle uh, all of a sudden, they can't see as a swimmer. They can't see out of their goggles. We all know that famous story. Mm -hmm. That's grit. That's grit. Because they have uh, the discipline to deal with any crisis in the moment. What you're describing that really keeps people from succeeding is the lack of resilience. Because we're all going to have something that gets in our way and we all understand that and all of us have a bit of grit believe it or not but the thing that we have to develop and we have to be absolutely um resolved intentional in developing this skill is how do we keep our spirits up when we run into multiple problems multiple barriers multiple job losses multiple uh lack of getting a job for an interview because those are set up not they kind of match you with the position so how do you get ready for that and i would argue that being a musician is it so jack when you were learning how to play the ukulele was it easy and you immediately started playing tunes uh that's definitely not true i'm sure uh ukulele <laughs> has a ukulele has a bit of a faster learning curve than many instruments but it was definitely not an automatic thing yeah yeah, but it was worth it when you played your first song. You mm -hmm. probably remember your first song. I remember my first song on I harmonica. Yep. Yeah, you remember that because how many times did you fail before you could play that first song to where you would go to your friends and say, hey, I just learned this. How many Pl times? Plenty. I can't even count. <laughs> plenty of times. Exactly. So from a very young age, we're, more, we're much more accepting of failure because we have – like Nami said earlier, is that you've got to have your eye on that prize. You've got to have your eye on that goal. Well, mm -hmm. when, we're, when we're kids, our goal is to play a song. And we're learning how to, we're going through a lot of trouble and a lot of effort and a lot of failure in order to learn one little tiny song. And is it worth it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and of course I it's worth it. it. Yes. And so if you continue doing that, over and over and over again what are you learning you're learning joy you're learning how to create joy for yourself so you become resilient because you know that the path to joy the path to success is multiple failures and from each failure as oprah oprah winfrey will tell you from each failure you learn whether you're on the right path and you might have to adjust like you get a rhythm wrong on your first tune. It doesn't sound quite right. You're there forever and you sort of hit, you sort of hit that spot and then you suddenly realize I'm on the wrong path and you shift and you go a different direction. That's a, maybe not the clearest example, but you get my point. Yeah. So those are the two things I think 
what you'll, uh, if you go on the artspeaks.net website and you look at uh, Jamie Lynn White, who's the admissions, uh, was the admissions director for Northwestern University, she'll describe what I just said related to admissions processes for colleges. They're looking for people who are musicians and artists because they fail on their way to success. And the percentage of musicians and artists who finish in four years, who complete their degree is higher than any other background for any subject. So if you have an arts background and you go to college at Northwestern, they understand that you will actually finish mm -hmm. if you have a background in the arts. So they will accept you more readily if you have a background in the arts than any other major focus because of the fact that they know it's been proven that your desire to be a musician or an artist involves failing. Yeah. Um, so I just had a question that I think you've kind of beat around the bush on it and I haven't exactly asked it directly. So um, what exactly do you think is the purpose of music? Just from your standpoint, that's like a very loaded question, but we've talked like I've talked to a lot of people about it um, in our band class last year, last year, we spent a lengthy amount of time talking about it and we hit different points. You're talking about how historically it's been very much a vehicle for change, right? So you have Shostakovich's symphonies that were, some of them were like a direct protest to the Soviet Union. Um, you have now, there's a lot of people um, that are releasing more modern um, hip hop or pop music that directly talks about the establishment and, other um, like political agendas. Um, but we've also talked about when you brought up Vijay Gupta um, earlier this year, that is something I asked him, I was like, what do you think it is? And he thought it was inherently to connect people together. Yeah, I think what's great about your question is we've answered it for different people already, you know, and just talking about what we get out of it. I think uh, Vijay would, would agree that, um, the, the idea that uh, you connect with another person through music is a powerful thing, especially when you're talking about all of the problems that we have today with social emotional struggles during this time. And even during school, one of the things that Vijay talked about was uh, people struggling to make connections, uh, struggling to be enough as they are. So I think uh, music has so many different applications that it becomes that, uh, you know, the ultimate um, emotional widget. Like you can, you can use it for just about any problem that needs solving. And, and you just in your question, you, you named, uh, you know, hip hop, uh, rap, much of what that genre is trying to do is wake up everyone to the inequities in our, um, in our system right now, the way it's set up. It's totally uh, systematically racist right now. And so when you have people have the ability to express their frustration with not having equal opportunities because of the color of their skin, I think that's really powerful. It's, mm -hmm. it's something that provides them with a way of communicating that frustration and is, as you said, 
sort of moving us in a direction to be open to change. Right. I don't think anybody really wants um, to live in a society where ultimately people are denied their talents, denied their, um, their life experience because of the way they look. I don't think anybody really wants that. So I think uh, music can enact social change. We've seen that many, many times. But it can also affect change in a person. Can I give one quick example of that? Go yeah. for it. So people who are dealing with mental health issues, music is a big deal. So uh, my friend, uh, Jay Todd Frazier, he's the uh, director of performing arts medicine at Houston Methodist Hospital in Houston, Texas. He has developed uh, with his music therapist this idea that why do people who are, are uh, living with mood disorders, why do we have to just use pharmaceuticals? Why do we have to use drugs? So he noticed with his music therapist how therapeutic music is for people who are in a very elevated mood state or a very low mood state. You know, you can bring somebody out of depression and you can bring them down from elation, mm -hmm. from mania. And so what he developed was a, an actual music is medicine playlist developed jointly between the music therapist and the patient where somebody who's living with bipolar disorder can, when they are feeling a very uh, high elated mood and they're suffering from mania, they can sit down, listen to a seven song playlist and bring themselves back from red to green. So that kind of power is, I think, something we've barely tapped in the medical profession, where you can have a very therapeutic effect without pharmaceuticals. Pretty amazing. So. Yeah. I, sure. I actually have somewhat of an example of that. Um, Someone I uh, just recently interviewed, his name is Graham uh, Betchart, and he's a uh, sports psychologist and works with NBA players. And he released um, an album uh, that uh, it's called Unlock. And what it is, it's a series of tracks that talk about positive affirmations and talk about, and it basically is supposed to give you different emotions so that you can pick one track that most identifies with you to play before you have a game or a match or in order to get in the right mindset during the day or for a workout. And it's amazing how not only the music, but the words that uh, he gives can really make you repeat it in your head and think of yourself. And it may even help you perform better or even day to day be in a better mood or be in a better mindset. Yeah. And you see uh, professional athletes all the time with the earbuds in, they're jamming to something. They've been self uh, music medicating for years. And that kind of idea is spot on. It sounds a little sounds a little bit like snake oil you're trying to sell, doesn't it? Sounds like mm -hmm. he's trying to sell him some. But the truth is, uh, as we established early in this podcast, you've got uh, the ability to uh, bring people's memories back. That's how powerful it is. So can it pump up an athlete? You bet. Can it bring an athlete down so that they're more calm? Absolutely. I mean, all of those things happen with music. And it's, uh, it's amazing to me that there are people who are making decisions about our education 
important young people that don't see music as an essential component of a comprehensive education. They see music as something that's an extra and only talented people should get instruction in it. Well, the truth is, as I said early on, we're all musicians. Everybody should have an opportunity to explore. How else are we gonna create our imagination? Why do we stop art and music as a requirement after fifth grade? I don't understand that at all. Right. Should be something everybody explores, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I'm, always, I'm always just so like astounded by artists or composers in general that can take like the pain of like an entire community and put it into something like that. I think that's so, I just think that's so powerful. That's why like some of my like favorite hip hop artists are people that talk about that. That's why like my favorite composer is like one of my favorite composers is Shostakovich because he does, he does it so well. And it, it's obviously takes so much practice, but the way that you can empathize with the entire group of people is just so powerful, I think. Well, Nami, since you like uh, Shostakovich, can I make a recommendation for you to listen to? Sure. Along that line. Um, the Second Symphony of Mahler. Are you familiar with that? It's called Resurrection Symphony. I've heard of it, um, but I have not listened. I wrote it down. It's, a, it's amazing. I don't have to tell you anything more about it. Just based on the fact that you like Shostakovich, you, you will love it. It's a long, I think it's an hour and a half but it's totally worth listening to. So I recommend Olive Mahler, of course, right. uh, is worth listening to. But uh, that one in particular, I think will really appeal to you. I definitely Resurrection will. Symphony, Symphony number two. Um, yeah, for sure. So for the last like 10 to 15 minutes that we have left with you, um, I kind of wanted to shift gears a little bit to um, more of like your teaching philosophy, but more specifically, like when you were at Nico Albanzi and even now at like the Merritt School of Music, um, how, like, what kind of environment do you set, or like, what's your teaching philosophy? Well, one of the first things we did when we moved into Niqua in 1997, um, let's see, I think it was Abby Hub, pretty sure that's who it was, painted the Aristotle quote that you see every day. Yep. And that, uh, I'd like to say that's my philosophy as if I, had anything to do with coining that phrase. Uh, I'm just the one who perpetuates it. And that is, uh, you are what you repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. I think that's Aristotle understood what anyone who's had any success knows is that habit is a better friend than inspiration. And that thought is amplified. I, I just want to read this quote. I pulled this up for this part of the podcast. Uh, this is by Octavia Butler, an African-American author, Blood, Child, and Other Stories. And she wrote, forget talent. If you have it, fine. Use it. If you don't have it, it doesn't matter. As habit is more dependable than inspiration. Continued learning is more dependable than talent. And I think, especially when you're in high school, the idea that you need to be tracked based on your talent gives everybody the idea that they are incapable unless they find their talent. And the truth is, 
we are all more capable if we find our passion and pursue it and make it a habit. And everyone is capable of that. You see that all the time. I know from, uh, I graduated from high school over 40 years ago. And I go back to my class reunions and you see those people who did not do well in school, who are doing exceptionally well in life. There's no correlation between doing well in school and doing well in life. There's a correlation between people finding their passions and making pursuit of that passion a habit that becomes successful. So that I think drives my energy when I teach is that I do not look at people as if they are talented. I look at people as if they are wanting to work hard in order to, to do great things together. So I am always, always working to help people understand what they need to do and also to provide some motivation for them to do the hard work it takes. And sometimes that motivation comes from just pointing out the obvious, that they matter, that the work that they do counts, that they are seen, they are heard, and their contribution is invaluable. So when you do that for for people of your age, you show up. So in my classes, my kids show up. There's nobody skating, there's nobody hiding. Everybody knows they are valued and they are important. Right. Um, so I like I also I already told you this, but um I watched your TED talk on YouTube. Um and you talked about how when the 08 financial crisis came, um music music in general took a huge hit. Um yeah. and like I feel like I'm so lucky that our music department is so well funded um and our school treats it as a priority. But I know that you're talking about how, like every other school, um, our school also took music budget cuts. So like having to lead an entire group of teachers and faculty members, how did you exactly deal with that? Because that's definitely a, a blow. Well, I think it goes back to the idea that music is essential. And I don't think everybody believes that. I think um, 90% or more people polled say that they believe that music is important. But I think when you get into a situation where you have funding problems, people look at the arts as something that's expendable. So it's an easy way to balance the budget. You just cut the arts because, you know, ultimately people need to read, people need to uh, do math equations. Well, let's use math equations. So why do we do math? Is it so that we can balance our checkbook? We don't need to do that anymore. You just enter figures and you've got a computer to do that. So it's not, math is not a function of anything other than being able to exercise the brain. And music exercises the imagination. The fact that you would cut music, you would cut art over math is something everybody accepts. Right. And what I'm saying is we got to challenge that a little bit. I think we need to look at what the truth is for kids. So, okay, we're exciting everybody's imagination, which we know is needed in order for people to thrive. But let's not look at our kids as, as sort of these um, future executives in, you know, grooming future executives, grooming future entrepreneurs. Let's look at these people as people. And people need to have experiences that make life right now worthwhile in a meaningful way. And I don't think that 
you've got 100% of the population is going to say that math makes your life more worthwhile in the moment. But I think you get everybody to agree that making music, making art, makes you feel better right away, makes you feel like a contributor, makes you feel seen, makes you feel heard, makes you a part of this community, makes you feel like there's a future for you. So we bring music into uh, uh, Hesed House, a homeless shelter. Uh, we brought VJ to Hesed House. And right. you know what, those, what they said after uh, VJ played for them? I now can see a future other than what I'm doing right now. I can now see the possibilities. Do you think our teenagers, our middle school students, our elementary kids don't need that same thing? We need that. And uh, so my, my appeal to anyone who would be listening to this who's a decision maker, you are, it's going to be a rough, rough next five years pulling out of this economic uh, morass that has resulted from the coronavirus. Right. It's nobody's fault, but it's everybody's responsibility to move us in a direction where we come out the other end whole. And you can't do that if you eliminate the arts. Totally agree. So I'm very curious because obviously you built up uh, Nikos program and Wabanzi's program basically from scratch and were able to turn it into a Grammy winning program. How did you go about the beginning stages of building that culture of excellence and create it into a habit? That's a great question. <laughs> I'll tell you, it was, uh, it was the wild west 35 years ago, and, uh, literally out in the Western suburbs. And I came here because of the fact that you could work with people K-12. And where I came from, you could only work with me. I was just <laughs> I was just trying to build a program with no one else. So the reason I came here was to collaborate and people were willing to do that. But one of the things that I found very useful was a philosophy that um, the three no philosophy. The three no philosophy is when you're a teacher and you're taking responsibility to make something really good in education, um, you have to know that people are going to say no to you and you have to be okay with that. But that doesn't mean you, you say, oh, all right, then I won't do that. What you do is on the first no, you take that as an advisory no. Oh, okay. So you're just telling me that what I'm telling you right now isn't fitting with your version of the of you know what needs to happen. So how do I change that? What is what is no about this? And then you come back a second time answering all those no questions. And then if they say no again, you've got a third no to go to before you give up. Now that that's just a way to cope with being told this can't happen. And in building this program, there were many, many people who believed that their version of the world was the one that would always be. And I believed that the version of the world could be manifested. And to manifest something, no is just, is just a moment of reflection. No is not a final answer. So did I ever reach a, a third no? Um, maybe, I don't remember. But I do know on the third no, when I went for the third no, you'll know this because when you get to wind ensemble and you take weighted grades, because we have weighted grades for wind ensemble and the upper right. when you're senior. Yeah. I came up for the third no. I had two up to that time. 
It took 12 years to implement that. So I think um, if I had always felt like I should do what I'm told, then I don't think we'd have the program that we have now. I think I, I was hired to be an expert and to build a program. That's what I was told, and I believed it. And then when somebody told me I couldn't build the program, I didn't. <laughs> so it's just a matter of choosing. You know, I didn't believe it. I didn't yeah. believe that you tell me I can't do that. I, I think I, I need to reevaluate how I'm addressing this so that you can understand. Yeah. I, it's like you pick and choose your battles, right? It's like, I'm just going to relate this. I'm a little bit of a history kind of guy. So I'm going to relate this back to so many movements that have been largely successful. It's all in civic disobedience, right? It's to an extent where it's nonviolent, but you're making your voice heard and you're making people uncomfortable, but the good kind of uncomfortable, good trouble. <laughs> and I think yeah, that I in order to succeed, you need good trouble. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not, I'm not saying that it was trouble because my, my path and the path of somebody like Rosa Parks I'm not even coming close to being in that category. (laughs) But you talk about people who are actually changing the world. All I did was want to change the experience for kids to make it better. So not even comparison. But I will say that since you're a history buff, if you have you studied Rosa Parks? Yeah. Because what you're describing as far as what we know about Rosa Parks, and then you actually see what she did leading up to the that big moment, you it's unbelievable what people have to do in order to reach that moment when everybody pays attention and the world shifts just a little bit. It all comes back full circle with delayed gratification, everything, right? Everybody sees like you have movements starting on Twitter now and it's like, I'm sorry, but retweeting something is not the equivalent to being put in jail for what you truly believe in. Right. And like so much has switched to social media where I know Jack and I both, we read a little, um, like a, like a mini article, mini story that somebody wrote Mm -hmm. up and it was titled, I think the revolution will not be televised. And it was talking about how these like small connections that you make aren't really meaningful, right? We all have Facebook friends. I don't think any of our Facebook friends are actually our friends except for maybe a couple, right? So all these weak links ultimately won't result because when you're comparing movements that have started now on Twitter, um, comparable to like, for example, the civil rights movement, people were being jailed for that people really had to sacrifice something more than half a second of their time to get somewhere. And I think that once people remember that, we'll sky's the limit. And I think you, you hit it. Uh, it's not that you have to be jailed, that you have to be present. And yeah. that's what we're missing during this time is we are missing the contact. We had no idea how important it is to see each other, how important it is to touch each other. We, that's what we do all the time. We take it for granted. Sort of like the fact you're not supposed to touch your face and then you don't realize how much you touch your face until <laughs> yeah. you touch your face, you know, when you know you're not supposed to. But we, we need to be together. And that's the connection. So here's a good litmus test. Uh, before this all happened, if you, if you put out uh, everybody meet at this particular spot, and everybody said you'd have 300 people say, yeah, I'm going to meet at this particular spot. How many people would actually show up? 10. I mean, there's basically a 30 to one connection that you're making on Facebook. So right. it's real for one out of 30 people. But when you have a connection with somebody in person, 
that's a real connection that's human that lasts and that and that if they give you a commitment in person they're uh, 30 times more likely to show up now they won't all show up because we all know how that goes but you know what i mean no but for sure there's just an aspect i think it also shows why music is so important because a lot of times it's a shared experience of going to a concert with somebody, listening to a, a, an amazing song with your friend for the first time in a car when you're driving. It's that experience that you guys actually bond together. It's not just the music. It's the fact that you get to have that moment with somebody else and share an experience together so that you get just that much closer. I agree hundred percent. And boy, won't it be nice. Are, are you, uh, are you thinking about that day maybe in a year where you feel safe enough to go to a large, to go to a concert? How is that going to feel? Right. It's going to be amazing. I know when uh, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra went on strike recently, I went, yeah. to the, I went to the concert right after they came back. And the reception that the audience gave the orchestra for being back was something I've never witnessed before. Can you imagine that first concert when everybody feels like this is licked and we can go out and be safe. Unbelievable. Yeah. It would be crazy. Yeah. That's just, um, that's crazy to think about. Um, so just wrapping up here are two questions that we ask everybody that comes on. Um, the first one, if you have a couple, maybe two to three books that have influenced your life for your outlook, um, what are they? The uh, seven habits of um, seven habits of influential people. I think uh, seven habits of highly effective people. There, there it is. That's yeah. Thank like you very that, much. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah that uh, actually that really changed my life uh, back in 1995. I think really changed the way I looked at the world. Uh, currently, let me think. Hmm. There's so many. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm failing on this. I will, um, I'll, I'll just pick uh, Sound and Music by uh, McGill, David okay. McGill, uh, just because of how that helped me um, create a class for educators to help them become a little bit more resolved in content and making yeah. their teaching better. So those two I'll give for right now. And then do you have any music recommendations too, classical or um, not classical? Other than, other than Mahler? Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, every day I'm challenged when I do my workouts every day, um, I listen to Digital Concert Hall. And there's a, in Digital Concert Hall, which is the digital manifestation of the Berlin Philharmonic. So they record, beautifully record, every single concert um there are some incredible suggestions um there's one that i never would have found on my own that i would recommend you look up because it's got the coolest thing it's got a musical saw in it it's got uh i just heard this yesterday and i was just blown away it's george crumb's ancient voices and it's got a uh, singer singing into a piano and making the strings uh, sympathetic vibrations. It is so cool. But uh, the, the Mozart of our time is Jacob Collier. Oh, Jacob, I love Jacob Collier. His chord progressions and he's- Unbelievable musician. I've seen the one where he is, uh, 
He's teaching music theory to Herbie Hancock. I haven't seen that. But you totally have to see it. I Unbelievable. Listen, I listen to him all the time. He's just one of my friends um, is a sax player at Wabonsi and he's been, he's like very, he's really, he really loves it. He's been in wind ensemble since his freshman year. And um, he loves Jacob Collier. He showed it to me. No, he's always like talking to me like, you know, check out this chord progression. This is crazy how he just like does this and everything. That's yeah, it really is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Okay, the final question we have for you is if you can go back and speak to your younger self, say, in high school or in college, and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, my God. If I went back then, a deep one. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's. I I think what I would would do is I'd want to have dinner with myself and just (laughs) let, let me talk. And then I would just nod my head a lot. (laughs) <laughs> because if I knew then what I knew now, I'm not sure I would take all the risks I did. I think it was better that I had no idea. So I would not reveal a thing. I would just try to be friends with that foolish young man that thought he could change the world <laughs> and say, you go, go get him. <laughs> because there's nothing I can tell my younger self that would have been helpful. <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> So real quick, I'll let you kind of uh, tell people where they can find more about the work you do and find out uh, where they can reach you. You can uh, find Art Speaks on Facebook, Art Speaks 204. That's easy to find. And what I like about uh, having a page on Facebook is that all of the resources you need in order to um, build a case of advocacy for the arts can be found with current articles, current research, it's just find out what appeals to you. There's got to be two or 3,000 articles that support what we do. And as a music educator, before I started uh, Art Speaks, I didn't know all this information existed. So uh, anybody who is an advocate who really wants to do the right thing regarding the arts and funding and be an advocate, that's the place to go. And the other one is uh, videos that we have. are on artspeaks.net and you'll find Vijay Gupta and you'll find other videos like I referenced a video of um, Jamie Lynn um, White who is uh, the uh, admissions counselor. We also have an admissions uh, officer from uh, University of Illinois talking about what you need in order to get into those institutions. Very helpful. And there's also great video of students a lot from Niqua who are talking about their experience with the live inside. So that's artspeaks.net. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you, uh, Chip, for joining us. And that's it for this episode of the 5am Hustle podcast. As always, peace.